What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up, folks? Welcome back to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, or I should say greetings if this is your first episode. Shout out to everybody that is viewing this video only. For everybody that doesn't know, I do actually publish full video episodes with kind of like newscaster style uh, cutouts of the articles that I cover to the left uh, or right of my face. I guess it would be your left, my right. And that goes up on Patreon for everyone that supports my content there. I will give a shout out to the new folks that are supporting there in a second. I want to talk about today's beverage, though, first. This comes from shout out to Find Me in Seattle came to my uh, Thanksgiving bonanza here at my place and to kind of say thanks and also probably just get rid of the immense amount of coffee that he has stored up. He gave me one of these. This is uh, from a company called Conduit Coffee Company. This is their Tanzanian uh, coffee. Ayala Peaberry is the name. I brewed a Chemex of it this morning and I went out for a few coffee meetings this morning and I'm coming back and I'm going to finish this Chemex now. I half warmed up what's in this cup here and I added the rest of the room temp stuff here and that kind of made a farting ASMR it's good it's really bright I it's definitely a normal it's definitely a change from the Ethiopian that I'm used to drinking but yeah when I get it in like little 250 gram bags or whatever this uh um, this quantity was it went over great on Thanksgiving for everybody that wanted coffee after the big meal and yeah I think there's probably one or two more 40 gram servings here for Anna and I in the morning and she also hasn't complained about it so I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep the train going uh, Patreon shout out the people who have been awesome enough to support not just this show, but all the content that I produce across all of the platforms I have. Sorry, I have to say your full name. Jonathan Bravo. Johnny Bravo is a new supporter. And then I also have Joel W from down under. Uh, he is also new on the mentor tier. So it's been really great to kind of get to know him through some coaching calls. And I'm excited to continue that relationship. As far as an update goes, we'll we'll get to more updates later on in the show. I want to get through some of these articles because there's it seems like there's a lot, but I've gotten a really interesting unlock in my flow with Notion. I'm I'm before Notion for those of you that don't know, it's an application that I use. It's kind of like Trello, kind of like Evernote, kind of like a hybrid of both of those together, and I saw it as a really great use of me being able to organize not just my content life, but just like all the stream and fire hose of information that I'm constantly dealing with. Um, more so on the personal side, not so much on like my Voyager's table side, like the other, we use Airtable as a piece of software for all of that. But Notion has been great to me and I had a really cool unlock this morning. I don't know what 
moment in the you know past 48 hours made it tick in my brain, but I was like, I have basically made it now where I can structure the articles where they're almost drag and drop. And so hopefully you'll find today's show to kind of flow in a in a unique way that's not so sporadic and jumping around as past episodes have been. But and I know some of you folks like that, but this this will so hey, maybe I should take advantage of this and actually give you a framework of what today's gonna look like. So we're gonna go um like young cooks, stages, what it's like to look, work as a line cook are kind of the first initial stories. And then I talk a little bit about a great video that was made about a restaurant in New York that gives a little bit of a great behind the scenes. And then we go into a few listicles, uh, the Good Food 100, Michelin got announced for Spain, Portugal, Tokyo, and uh, Seoul. So we're going to go into a little bit of that. Thrillist put out a listicle on the best new restaurants, which I have a few opinions on. And then we talk about a little bit of Dominique Crenn and David Chang news. And then we go into a concept called a virtual restaurant at the end. And then a virtual answer question about um, someone who is just starting off and they feel like they're working messy and they want some advice. So that's a little bit of a quickie summary on what we're going to go into in episode 112 today. So let's start with a piece called What Is It Like to Work as a Line Cook in 2019? And this piece was originally brought on my radar because I found someone, I someone retweeted the author of this article and I saw it and I was like, I would be keen. They, they put out a request saying they were interested in speaking with line cooks about a piece that they were writing for Eater. And I said, I, I truthfully, I don't work as a line cook anymore, but I have a lot of opinions. If you'd like to uh, get my thoughts, I was a line cook for a long time and I'd like to think I was a pretty good one. And if there's anything I can do to help, uh, please feel free to reach out. Otherwise, I highly recommend you talk to my friend Ray at Line Cook Thoughts. And so she ultimately went, ended up um, speaking with him. And I really wanted to just kind of highlight a few things that she brought up in this. So you can definitely tell even at the first kind of paragraph, they talk about the April Bloomfield, um, Ken Friedman disaster that we covered at length on the show when that um, happened. Of course, the sexual harassment that happened in that location. Um, but it is basically taking the stance of, is there still this air of misogyny and is it still a boys club uh, working as a line cook or is has has this that kind of sector of the industry that culture kind of uh, changed over the past few years few months quote now that revelations of sexual misconduct by some of the biggest chefs have come to light often revealing a harrowing portrait of toxic male-dominated environments where abuse sexism and inequity went unchecked are young line cooks bringing a different attitude to the kitchen do they see any difference in the social dynamics of restaurant work end quote and it gets into talking a little bit about, um, you know, there was that Kitchen Confidential era that, you know, most of us probably went through, especially if you kind of came up in like the early 2000s, early 2010s. Um, it goes into actually talking to people. So uh, Hanale Souza, who's a 22-year-old line cook in Lake Tahoe, talks about Shi Lin Wong, who's also a 22-year-old line cook. She's in uh, New York City. She's working at Gramercy Tavern. Obviously, they <laughs> came under fire a few weeks back. We won't get into that any deeper. Um, but I do want to talk about Ray, who also is 22. Man, the 22-year-olds are, are strong here. He's, of course, uh, from Buffalo originally, but he's moving around a ton for work, I know. Um, and yeah, it he, he gives a great quote about just there there's so much 
behind the scenes that goes on. And there's so many line cook breaks down even further, right? So if you work at a hospital or if you work at a, uh, Ray talks about being a cook at Chipotle or someone working two jobs to support their family, quote, there's so much they have to say and so much they want out of their industry, end quote. And so I think that it was great that he kind of shined a light on the fact that using the word line cook often conjures up the image of, you know, the, the, the single person running a station at a you know, semi-busy modern American restaurant or possibly someone in a hotel. But there are other people that, you know, off, off also Venn diagram onto this same kind of center circle that is, you know, working professionally as a chef. And so I think that that was great that he kind of brought that up. Talks about um, taking care of oneself as a line cook. Talks about the uh, Bill Buford memoir called Heat of course, about Mario Batali. And I think that that was kind of um, my biggest takeaway was that, and we're going to talk about this a, a little later on in the show, but the the idea of the stories that I read growing up were very much so like, we just kind of have to, this is just how it is. Like, this is how the industry is. It's structured in the way that it's structured to weed out the weak, quote unquote, the ones that can't put up with the strenuous hours and the, the backbreaking labor that is being a chef. Um, but I think that as the culture starts to change, we are starting to see some changes uh, across the board. So, quote, the gender dynamics in restaurant kitchens are already beginning to change, according to many of the cooks I spoke with. Amethyst Ganaway says that now it's not unusual to see men, particularly long, young ones, say something to their older colleagues like, hey, man, that's not cool. Respect a woman's boundaries. But she adds, quote, I hope the change isn't just because it's becoming something that's hashtagable, end quote. And that, again, touches on that deeper issue of the culture has to change. It can't just be this surface level stuff that we bat around in this way that you just don't want to be the one to get uh, called out in any in any way, shape, or form. It has to be this thing where the, the underlying true behavior and the nature of how you conduct yourself professionally changes, right? Um, and so there's a bunch of other links that she uh, does direct people to in this article the account of what it's like to be a trans line cook she obviously mentions Kwame's notes from a young black chef uh talking also about is it this article or another one where no that's in the other one where you talk about David Chang but anyways there's there's tons of links here if you want to kind of dive deeper into this but I just thought it was an interesting piece and of course any shout out to Ray that I can give I will give because um I really think what he's doing is great Moving on to talking about a article called Young Cooks Struggle to Afford to Live in San Francisco. I think this was kind of a no-brainer for most of you, especially the ones of the, you that are in the Bay Area or in other areas of California where cost of living is high. But I wanted to cover this for those that are maybe new to the show, or maybe you're someone who's getting into that point where you're wanting to make the move to a larger city, or maybe you're currently frustrated with living in one, or you're like, you're in that moment where you're like, I just, I drum up the numbers and it doesn't make sense. You're not the only one. So uh, it, it talks about how some of the people in San Francisco are experiencing record-breaking prices this summer in rent. Uh, people sharing apartments across multiple people, uh, living together. Quote, it's just hard to find good cooks. They're not in the city anymore like they used to be. And that's talking from, um, who is this? This is someone, Kimberly Miramontes. She's 18. Uh, no, she was 18, and she went to school in San Francisco, and now she's continuing to work there. Quote, when Christina Chase took a job at opening 
San Francisco's tartine manufacturer in 2016, she confronted a whole new obstacle, the Cross Bay Trek. Because almost none of the staff lived in San Francisco, she recalls, everyone was commuting, like a solid hour plus to work each day. For some folks, she adds, the trip was closer to three hours. While she believes that tartine is a special place, it doesn't seem fair that cooks making $17 to $18 an hour, a typical starting wage for places like tartine, they can't live closer to work. And it isn't just young, inexperienced cooks who are struggling. These days, skilled cooks are hard to find, says Alexander Hong, the co-owner and executive chef of Sorel, a Michelin-starred spot in Pacific Heights. People either want to do their own spot, or they know how to find other things in this industry that make more money and have a more comfortable lifestyle. And he is 30. He recalls that a decade ago, newbie cooks would spend months on a wait list to work at a top restaurant. Now, he says the demand is inverted. The cooks make the calls. And we've spoken about this on the show before. Quote, like other ambitious young cooks, Hong began his career in prestigious kitchens with a degree from the CIA and a stint at New York's John George. He landed a job at Quince on the line. At the time, Quince had a single Michelin star, and Hong got hands-on experience at every station. But the opportunity came at a price. It was a brutal life, Hong says, one that entailed working 12-hour shifts, five, occasionally six days a week. It was just draining on my body. It hurt all the time. And then at around $11 an hour, he was living virtually paycheck to paycheck. And then contrast that, when he left Quince after two years to work as a private chef, quote, he saw what he describes as a completely different side of the industry. He made $90,000 a year and enjoyed perks like a car and the use of several credit cards. But the work was repetitive and Hong felt he wasn't learning. So after 12 months, he began doing tasting menu pop-ups in hotels and restaurants around the city. His crew grew from two to 10 and their dinners went from monthly to weekly. And he talks about making uh, $10,000 per kind of like pop-up day uh, doing that kind of a job, which is uh, really awesome. And I think that that is incredible that you can see the stark contrast between like hours put in and your ownership of that and then the direct influx in income as opposed to like, you know, a lot of us know the feeling of like when you're slow versus when you're just completely slammed at a restaurant and you look at your paycheck and you might see a slight increase because yes you worked a few more hours but you if the re- if the restaurant makes a spike in revenue you don't often see that uh, on the back end as a line cook which is you know normal in a lot of other businesses right i don't think anybody at apple is expecting to get a pay bump during you know this time of the year when everybody's buying black friday uh gifts but at the same time it's a different it's a different, uh, it's not apples to apples, if that makes sense. But yeah, for the most part, I think that that is more or less like if you want, as per usual, all of these are linked up below if you want to read more. I don't think that this is like mind blowing information, but I think that this just kind of in the same way the last article did, it just kind of sources from stories, um, from people who are really in it and who are really kind of dealing with the ramifications of the housing market goes up, but we aren't getting paid more as chefs. And so what does that exactly mean? Okay. Jonathan Kaufman, person who has been talking a lot about staging in his writing lately, wrote a piece called The Pros and Cons of Staging in a Restaurant. And I really think that this one was exactly right up my alley. I talk about this a lot. Um, and yeah, this, look at this flow, folks. I'm doing this flow thing great. Drag and drop articles. It's the new way to be. 
And I'm not going to dig too far into it, even though it seems like I probably mentioned quite a few quotes from this article. But if you're in the chapter of your career where this is kind of super top of mind, you're either putting together a list of restaurants that you want to start doing reach outs to, or if you have just gotten off of like, okay, well, it's going into the holiday season and my restaurant is closed for a little bit of time, I'm going to go stage. This could really um, offer a lot of insight into the experience and kind of what to expect, especially if you are new to this whole staging thing. Quote, uh, who do they talk to? They talk to this person, Martinez is the last name, Claudia Martinez, who is the pastry chef at Tiny Lou's in Atlanta. She says, quote, if somebody asked me whether they should stage or go to culinary school, do a stage, which is a great piece of advice. Quote, chefs make a distinction between one-day tryouts when applying for a job and long-term stages. The former are essential, most argue, and not just so employers can see if a prospective cook can make it in their kitchen. As eater young gun Ashley Shanti, chef of Ben Bene on Eagle in Ben Bene on Eagle in Asheville, North Carolina, says, quote, in the industry now, people are starting to wake up and see that self-care is important, as well as creating safe spaces that allow people to have a voice. Those are all important to me. And you can't really gauge where a restaurant is in regards to it unless you spend time there. End quote. And I think that's an interesting point that not a lot of people acknowledge. I think that that often can lead young people chefs to feel a lot of pressure when they go and stage at a restaurant and they are either so into the notch on their resume of being able to say that they worked there or they really think that the techniques and experience they'll gain there are super, super important. And you kind of push to the wayside all these other things like how is the culture? Uh, is there a roadmap to you being able to advance and grow at that place? Um, do you like how the kitchen is laid out? Do you think like... Um, there are all these other factors that go into experiencing a restaurant when you're there. And sometimes you put so much effort into that first initial point of communication and you're like, I just want an email back. And sometimes I feel like you can over index and almost kind of commit to too much, but even though it doesn't feel right, because you think you've put so much effort into securing this opportunity when in reality, they're interviewing you and you are also interviewing them. You're seeing if it's a good fit for you. And I think that that was an issue that I made very early on in my career where I would say yes to things because it would be stupid for me to say no, if that makes sense. Like you get an opportunity to work at a place that has Michelin stars and recognition or the chef has some sort of pedigree behind him or her and you don't realize that your happiness also ultimately matters. And I think that people set themselves up where they aren't happy and then their performance starts to suffer and you kind of wonder, and then you ultimately have a bad experience there. You know what I mean? So it's like you're saying yes in the short term to ultimately hurt yourself in the long term when you make these kind of decisions. It talks about the $149,000 lawsuit at the local for me Willows Inn. And talking about 19 former stages being owed back wages. Obviously, every place is different. You can't say that all stages are unpaid or all internships are good or bad. They're all so different. Quote, that said, in other professions, paying thousands of dollars for continuing education is common. Cooks gain theirs by working for free. Two years after Martinez's return from Sweden, she's still paying off the plane ticket, rent, and expenses she incurred. Compared to the $80,000 she spent on culinary school, she thinks the cost was worth it. Even though I put myself in a financial bind, I wouldn't go back and change anything. You can always pay people back, end quote. I think that's really important to think about comparing that 
financial burden when you see the tuition breakdown of some of these culinary schools versus what would it cost for me to subsidize my living expenses and maybe some travel cost to go to this place where they will let me learn and experience what they do, but they won't pay me for my time. But then if I can, you know, stomach the cost of what it's going to be like to spend this time here, compare and contrast, like where are you at in your own career? And based on the structure of that learning environment, how much are you going to come away with versus, yes, this thing seems very structured and it seems like I'm going to get this piece of paper that says that I completed something at the end of it, but where is your knowledge base going to be and how prepared do you feel to go out into the real world after this experience that is culinary school, right? Quote, Levi Raines, a 2019 Eater Young Gun and the chef at Bywater American Bistro in New Orleans, cautions that young cooks especially need to look beyond the romance of a stage to consider what they'd get out of the experience. They don't understand stages involve a lot of picking herbs and menial tasks that don't benefit your skill level as a cook. They can put that on their resume and go around town saying, I worked at Noma, but they're still, in a, they're still a terrible cook that has the same skill level they had when they went in, end quote. And I think a lot of people suffer, not suffer from that, but fall into that those trappings of like, well, yeah, I paid like eight grand to go to Copenhagen and uh, subsidize my rent in a little shitty apartment. I should be able to say that I worked at Noma. And the fact of the matter is, I think that there's a, a pretty common trend in the industry of people saying, being able to say that you worked there means that you were paid to work there. And I think that that's a very important distinction that I'm not alone in saying that I like I endorse that. I think that if you say that you stage somewhere, that often can bring to light the actual relationship and the transaction, quote unquote, that happened where it's like you were giving your time for free. The restaurant didn't have anything to lose. And so they put some trust in you to let you spend time in their kitchen and prep for them. Yes, but also learn from them and kind of see behind the curtain in exactly what happens there. And I'm, you know, the type of person who says that I staged at Noma and then the person that isn't in the industry will take that as, oh, Justin worked at Noma, right? No, I spent time there for free. I, I, I went on a recommendation of someone from per se and that was kind of like my, my time there. But people who don't know the difference between working for free and the intense process that goes into what it takes for Noma to write you a pay... I mean, I remember being working for free at per se. And the only goal of mine was to get a check given to me from Thomas Keller restaurant group. I just wanted to know that Thomas Keller was going to pay. So I always say I did my externship at per se, but I worked at French laundry, right? Cause I have pay stubs from this restaurant, right? If you don't have a pay stub, I caution people to say that they worked there because oftentimes that that can kind of, um, get misconstrued. And I know that, you know, when you're documenting your experience, oftentimes you think through what you learned at all these places. And I mean, I've had places where I've worked, where I've gotten less, less quote unquote experience and insight than the places that I've staged at, if that makes sense. So I think it all depends on where you are at in your career. I think it all depends on the open-mindedness that you have. I know that, you know, there are people who spent just as long at certain places as I did. And I came out way more knowledgeable and way more, I just gained more skills when I was there than these people who just came in and clocked in and 
did their prep list and kind of went home. Does that make sense? Like I stayed after I did extra projects. I tried to pay extra attention. I tried to get opportunity. I tried to weasel my way into opportunities that I wasn't quote unquote ready for because I wanted to just squeeze the orange for as much juice as I could. Bringing it back to talking about that benefiting your skill level as a cook, as this person says, I think that is kind of the kicker where you'll often, there's this great quote from Daniel Balud where he says, you'll learn more and I'm going to totally butcher it, but this is how my brain remembers it. You will learn more cleaning lobster at a Michelin star restaurant than you will working the grill station at a country club in that just your observation of people executing at this incredibly high level can often do more for yourself, not just in your confidence, but kind of like how you perceive what working in a restaurant at a really high level does rather than just, oh, well, I know how to cook 20 steaks a night, medium rare. Does that make sense? Quote, Carlo La Magna, owner of Magna in Portland, agrees. Even with 15 years under her belt, under his belt, he staged at the Modernist Cuisine Kitchen in Seattle a few years back for kicks. I think the more experienced you are, the more you get out of it. When you're a green cook, you don't see the nuanced things, how they put a piece of meat on a trivet in a particular order, how they set up their station, the tools that they use. Or you do see the tools but don't understand the exactness of everything. On his path from culinary school to restaurants from Chicago to Portland and from his European-based cuisines and Filipino-American food, Labanga has interned all over. Some of his best experiences were at smaller venues where the cooks took an interest in him. The most famous, which he won't name on the record, the vibe was so abusive, he quit. And I think that that is good in both I think when you're young, staging is more important. When you're more experienced, I think eating is more important. Does that make sense? So if you're just super green and you're just starting and you don't know how to do things, I think the the common trappings that people often fall into and people talk shit on the internet and memes all about this is you'll spend, you know, three, four years at a restaurant when you're starting off your career and then you only know that restaurant's way to do things. And I think it makes you sometimes very close-minded, and that will often lead to when you're at your next job, that meme that I was talking about when people say, oh, well, at my last restaurant, I, or at, at, at the last place I worked, we blank, insert blank. We used to wash the spinach like this. This is how we put our chickens in the walk-in. This is how we stored our radishes, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that can often close you in and you put blinders on and you don't, I think the benefit I had when I started off my career is I was constantly in new kitchens, not just at CIA where we changed classes every three weeks, but also when I staged a ton, you start to see how different chef de parties set up their stations and how, oh, so-and-so expedited in this way, but then when you're in this kitchen, they don't call back after so-and-so communicates this. And you don't you're you you become more open-minded and you're like okay well maybe there is more than one way to do this and then you start to see that oh different kitchens require different constraints and i think that that all benefits when you're starting off early i don't think that that's necessarily like oh well i have to go here when i'm prepared because then i'll actually be able to understand but i think you you're such a, a dry sponge when you start right and just any little droplet of water is going to get soaked into you 
Whereas when you're older, sometimes those nuances can be picked up just by going and supporting that restaurant via having a meal there. And you'll start to see like, oh, well, they did the pigeon with XYZ tweel and this was the vegetable garnish on it. And like, I know, I know exactly how they did that vegetable. And it was really interesting because I know like, so I ate at this restaurant in Atlanta called Staple House and they served a dessert component, which was honeycomb, which for those of you that don't know is like you add an alkaline to honeycomb and it reacts with the acid and you bring the honeycomb to this texture where when it, it does the, the Coke and Mentos thing, it foams up, right? And then you pour it out when the sugar consistency is at a point when it's going to harden and you basically have these aerated bubbles inside honey. And it's normally a dessert garnish because it's obviously sweet. It's honey. But I saw this pastry component served on a savory dish. I was on a pork dish. And it was like really small and it just added this great like kind of pop of crunchy, sweet, but like everybody knows barbecue sauce with pork, sweet, savory, right? And it was just like, oh, that was really cool. Whereas if I was, and I, but, but the thing is I knew how to do that technique, right? I knew how to make honeycomb. And so then I was able to kind of draw that distinct, I, I understood from a conceptual point of view why that dish made sense. Whereas if I would have had that meal when I was super early on, I would have been like, what were those sweet crunchy bits in the pork? Right? And then you contrast that where if you if I were to go and stage at a restaurant now, I more or less know kind of like what the behind the scenes are. So from a staging perspective, I'm not going to get that much value from standing there and picking herbs or, or polishing mushrooms, right? And so I think that that would be the only advice that I would contrast that with is, the, yes, the benefit is there to going out to eat when you're early on and when you're more experienced and the same for staging. There's benefit to staging when you're further on in your career and when you're young. But I don't know. I don't necessarily agree that staging is only is best when you're more experienced, if that makes sense. I think I've got one more quote in here. It's from Sayat Ozilmaz and Laura Ozilmaz, husband and co-chef at Noosh. They say that during their time at the Culinary Institute of America, he staged at Blue Hill at Stone Barns for close to a year. He wouldn't change a single day, he says, yet he won't gloss over its intensity. Quote, when they criticize the way you peel onions, fold your towel, tie your shoes, the way you wipe the counter, all of a sudden you find yourself in a vulnerable position of questioning everything you do. Fine dining is built on ripping off your confidence so you can't make your own decisions. Then the struggle of getting your footing builds it back up, end quote. And then his wife, of course, says she'd never recommend anyone work for free for a year, especially in an environment that could extirbate anxiety, mental illness, and addiction. But a month or two, that would be valuable to the right person. I think that's kind of funny that that, you know, dichotomy exists in a couple but again, I think that that is the importance when it's really hard if you have all this experience of, you know, the kind of rough and tumble, high volume environment of, say, you were a caterer for a really long time and you're kind of stuck in your ways. You've kind of calcified, solidified as far as your habits go and your working uh, motions and how you decide to set up yourself or how you move about a kitchen. And then you go to try to stage somewhere that's possibly out of your league, right? They're, they're, they're operating with a certain level of precision that didn't exist in the kitchens that you have worked in in the past. It can be really hard, especially if you tie up your identity and like, oh, I'm a great chef. And it's like, well, you're great at executing in this kind of an environment, but then you go to another one and it's totally different. 
And I think that when you're a little bit more young and malleable, that's where I that's why I push people, especially early on, and that's why I put out the content that I put out there because you're better off when you're malleable to kind of get that experience as opposed to being someone who is a little bit more stuck in their ways. You've created those ruts already and you're you're it's a little bit harder to change. If you want to see a little bit of what happens behind the scenes at a place that is operating at a at a more precise level, the Eater put out this great video in this series called Misum Plus. I think one of you shared this with me. And it's a great segue from our last story. This video is kind of an interview slash hangout session with the team at Asuka in New York. And I know that a lot of you are super fans of that restaurant. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a little produced with the head chef and the chef de cuisine kind of both working on one dish all day. I know that that isn't always exactly what happens. I've, tr- I've, I've been in that boat where you kind of have to test things for a certain amount of time, but it's truly a good insight into this kind of a restaurant. And if you're into Asuka, like I said, or even like if you want to see some behind the scenes of the modern Scandinavian inspired genre of restaurant uh, that might kind of be similar in structure to this with the tasting menu and the small team, this is a great peek into that world. So Eater, if you're listening, I would love more of this Mise en Place series. I would actually love to produce something like this myself in a restaurant on the kind of behind the scenes way where it's a little bit more raw and the restaurant isn't so concerned about being so prim and proper. I know that we would always kind of button our shirts up a little tighter and wipe the countertops a little bit more when a film crew was was in town and inside the kitchen. And most of you know that world, but I think being able to show it transparently is super, super important. Um, they even show a vegetable delivery in this video, which I think is really, really cool. So continuing on, we're going to move a little bit more into listicle land now. This is from the Good Food 100 list. And Eater asks, can this change the way that restaurants think about food? And so they gave a great little uh, interview with Sarah Brito, who is... Who is she to this? She's the co-founder of the Good Food 100. And the article starts off saying, quote, It's been said before, there are problems with traditional restaurant awards. They favor fine dining above other styles. The winning chefs are mostly men, and they're consistently lacking in cuisine diversity. It's only in recent years that power wielders in the hospitality industry have attempted to fix these problems. But one restaurant recognition vehicle, now it's in, now in its third year, has decided to truly change the kinds of restaurants that get recognized. The definition of good has to change first. And I think that's what struck me so clearly about this kind of listicle early on. I think the biggest thing that I said when I covered this a while back was that it has to be something that chefs regard. It has to be something that either the chefs or the consumers deem as being status worthy. You have to, whether it's the plaque on the wall like Michelin does or the sticker on the window outside of your place like Zagat kind of pioneered or something in someone's Instagram bio that says like if you can hashtag yourself GF100 you end up catapulting yourself into this higher echelon of thinking in people's minds and until that happens like I just didn't see that much of this listicle making the rounds on Twitter. Like I didn't see people applauding each other. And maybe that was my own social media algorithm playing tricks on me, but I I just didn't see it as much. 
So in talking to Sarah Brito, she says, quote, there's no other list that I'm aware of that puts the power of recognition back in the hands of chefs and restaurants. Every other list is done based on an editorial producer or awards committee. It's professional expertise, but still subjective expertise. The criteria that are used to get on the list tends to be very opaque, and that lack of transparency in the editorial process favors the privileged. It favors the establishment. And so I wanted to create a recognition vehicle. So... In talking about what metrics they take into account, quote, there are three parts to the survey. There's the sourcing piece, here's the business practices piece, and there's the labor practices piece. In the sourcing piece, we're tracking restaurant purchases in six categories and how much of their total budget they're able to allocate towards good food producers and purveyors that meet our minimum guidelines for defining good food. So for example, in the seafood category, purchases either need to be wild fish or seafood or sustainably farmed fish or seafood. And then getting into a little bit of those stats there, I'm not going to go too deep here. On average, what we found is that chefs are spending almost 70% of their food dollars on good food, but for whatever reason, about 30% of the food is still coming from not good food sources. And then that creates almost like a curve. So then they evaluate them versus their peers, if that makes sense. Talking about how the list involved a little bit, how do you ensure the accuracy of self-reporting, what is the most surprising insight you've gleaned in the three years of the Good Food 100, Uh, spoiler alert, it's that chefs would actually feel comfortable giving us information, because that's obviously going to become public knowledge, and then when asked what is the future of the list, quote, participating in the Good Food 100 is the sort of on-ramp to the gateway drug for chefs to get a little bit of a taste of becoming more vocal in their beliefs and values. That was a run-on sentence. It's the way to wave the flag and say we are a restaurant that cares and we care about good tasting food, but we also care about the environment. We care about farmers, people, our restaurant workers, and of course we care about you, the eaters. And then ending, quote, it's great that awards like Michelin and the World's 50 Best recognize the fine dining and tasting menus that are serving the 1%, but we also need to have recognition programs that are recognizing the restaurants that are serving the 99%. We would love to get the sweet greens, the dig-ins, the little beets. We would like to get those types of restaurants showing that they are willing to be transparent and demonstrating to eaters that they are walking the walk. It's one thing to put farms on chalkboards. It's another thing to put pen to paper and fill out an application and be transparent with your, with your purchasing practices end quote. I see something coming up through, there's like a software play here. And I know that I always go that route. It seems like I always do that. But I think that the idea of someone coming in, like in the same way that like POS systems are able to give you data on customer behavior, I think that it would be interesting for there to be some sort of software play where everybody benefits, right? Where you can see ratings on different purveyors. And I know that in the food world, it can often be like, oh, I'm getting this out of the back of some dude's van or some farm from across town is selling me XYZ or I'm working with some forager who isn't really licensed in whatever. But yeah, that could be interesting to see in the future as people develop more and more tools for people to use to track things. I think that could be very, very interesting. I hope that was enough of my opinion. I don't really, again, I think that it needs to have some sort of status element. That's kind of where my head is on that for people to take it a little bit more seriously. It can't just be this thing that you tout around and say like, oh, we're getting our food from from good source because it's not on like the amount of research that needs to be done for it to be okay. I, I watched this uh, great piece. Where was it from? Uh, Patriot Act. Hassan did a great piece on 
uh, clothing and how so many companies say that XYZ fabric or textile was made with less water or green fabric. Like it, it gets greenwashed, if that makes sense, which is for those of you that don't know the the practice of like saying things are green just to check the box when in reality, like there's other parts of the process that are incredibly harmful to the environment. And I think that this can often happen in the same way where you're saying you're sourcing from good places, but it's like you need to use oil for your fryer. How are you going to source that? Like I, that stat totally makes sense to me, right? Like where are you going to get certain products that provide this utility to your restaurant and it might not come from a quote-unquote good place because it's this thing that you either need to buy in bulk that maybe the good producers just can't get you enough of, right? You have to supplement from other sources. Or it's just like that product just doesn't get made, but it's like part of the recipe and you need to use it. Does that make sense? Okay, more listicles. We're talking about Michelin Guide. I'm not going to talk too much on Spain and Portugal. I do want to cover a few headlines that I saw from um, South Korea and Japan. Because since last we spoke, all of those have come out. Uh, this one is quick. Jiro Ono's restaurant does not have Michelin stars anymore. So that was, you know, this big headline. Former Michelin star chef Jiro Ono is stripped of his three Michelin stars. And it seems super malicious, blah, 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 to get you to click on it. But I'm going to save you the click. Quote, in announcing the latest round of Michelin star Tokyo restaurants, the French organization revealed that it will be delisting the 10-seat Suki Yabashi Jiro, and thus stripping the chef of his three stars because the restaurant is no longer open to the public. As it stands, reservations can only be obtained through knowing the right people or through luxury hotels. And the Michelin spokesperson talking about the one of the requirements to getting a Michelin star is that you have to be open to the public. You or I or your aunt or your cousin or your sister's dog walker must be able to go online or call the restaurant and make a reservation in order for it to be uh, eligible for Michelin stars, if that makes sense. Moving on, we need to talk about the fact that Inua... Noma's sister restaurant in Japan got two Michelin stars this year. Congratulations to everyone there. We are staying on the Japan train. Um, I think it was great to see that they are getting the recognition. I think being able to open a place like that in Japan after doing the beta test of doing their pop-up in Japan was incredible to see that kind of like that patience and that calculated strategy to having this happen. Putting a chef like Thomas Friebel in charge of that place was also uh, really cool to have them function at this level so many miles away from home base. I sincerely hope that Noma is the one to get three stars first instead of Inua. I know that people talk about the differences between different countries' Michelin guides, but to have Inua get three stars and have Noma still stay at two would be quite the shock. Um, if you've kind of been curious about what the food at Inua looks like, the this article gives a lot of insight into that. And believe it or not, there's actually a podcast episode at the end of the article if you want a little bit of a, you know, sit down with Thomas Friebel into that whole restaurant process. Um, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but it does exist at the end of that article. Quote, aerated monkfish liver terrine drizzled with spruce oil and beech nuts, enoki mushroom stems layered with venison lardo, toyoma shiro ebi shrimp on toasted koji cake served with fermented wild beech roses. There's no mistaking where these starters are being served. At Inua, the cuisine is as unique and distinct as a fingerprint. 
talking about a few more things. They highlight the ingredients, of course. Quote, on Freebles' early autumn menu, he was featuring steamed king crab, fall bamboo shoot topped with Miyazaki caviar, and superb, flavorful wild Hokkaido venison, which he barbecues and daubs with a rich glaze made with wild magnolia seed. Quote, in other good news is that In September, Inua has been expanding its operating hours. It now serves lunch at least two two Sundays a month, offering an abbreviated version of Freebull's Grand Menu, also now available at dinner. This is a winner on so many levels. Quote, in the meantime, keep your eye on Inua's website. There are plans soon to open up the lounge area and serve drinks along with bar snacks in Freebull's inimitable style. So that's great to hear that you don't just have to shell out for a, you know, 20, what was it, 20,000 yen? 28, 29 with, uh, yeah, two dinner options. Oh, there is a larger menu. So almost 30,000 yen, um, for the big blowout tasting menu, but there, it sounds like between doing lunch or just going into the bar and having snacks, which if you're going to experience a place like this, you're still going to get the same hospitality. You're getting the same ingredients. Yes, it's not going to probably be as much food, but if you're, you know, in Tokyo and you're deciding that, you know, you're, you're, you're able to fill your stomach up with ramen for dinner, you can still go to a place like Inua and have snacks there. I know that I went to this last time when I was in New York, I went to, um, Adamix and just sat at the bar and had snacks and I was able to go down into the, tasting counter room and see what the dining room looks like, but then experience the great hospitality upstairs and then meet with uh, the team there and just say hi and say, hey guys, I really want to come eat here someday, but the wait list is incredibly long. Anyways, moving on to news coming out of Seoul for their Michelin guide. There was a chef that sued the Michelin guide for including his restaurant. This is being reported by CNN Travel and a couple of you folks actually suggested that I cover this one. And I'm happy to. I love when you folks give me recommendations. Um, I do realize that this is a lawsuit and there are a ton of cherry-picked quotes, so I will do my best to give as much of the full picture as possible. I definitely recommend you read this, though, if you want either more information or if you kind of want to make sure that you are all up on all the information. So the South Korean chef is suing Michelin for including his restaurant. It's called Ristorante Eo, E-O in their 2019 guide to Seoul, saying that he asked them not to. He is taking action under a South Korean law against public insult, which is similar to American laws around libel and slander. And the funny thing about this is that it talks a lot about uh, correspondence on Facebook, where the restaurant would post on Facebook, or EO would post on Facebook, complaining about all this stuff. It's, It's very messy. Uh, quote, I have filed a criminal complaint against Michelin Guide's behavior of forcibly listing restaurants against their will and without a clear criteria. Including my restaurant EO in the corrupt book is a defamation against members of EO and the fans. Like a ghost, they did not have to, a contact number, and I was only able to get in touch through email. Although I clearly refused listing of my restaurant, they included it at their will this year as well. In another Facebook post, this one dated... November 13th, EO wrote, quote, there are thousands of restaurants in Seoul that are on the same level or better and more honest than those listed in the Michelin Guide. It is a sad joke that a mere 170 of them are representing Seoul, end quote. He says he wrote to them in an email, quote, numerous restaurants and the workers are wasting away their soul, money, time, and effort to pursue this mirage that is a Michelin star. 
He lawyered up. He got Shin Hana to be his attorney. And this attorney says that if Michelin is found guilty, the company will be ordered to pay somewhere between 500,000 to 3 million won, which is $420 to $2,500 in damages. Uh, one more from his beautiful Facebook page. He says, quote, I will work hard to safeguard the integrity of our restaurant against garbage critics like Michelin or influencers or the media. I will continue my campaign against Michelin. And I don't know this chef. I've never eaten at his restaurant. I have not had the pleasure of experiencing this person. He seems very old school, but with this weird air of like wanting to be new school and not like... I understand that most restaurants at their core are small businesses and to have these larger corporate entities come in and either pass judgment or use your likeness to, you know, sell more tires basically is what they're doing can seem a little slimy. And we've seen instances in the past of chefs that don't like the hug of death that is getting recognized by Michelin where all of a sudden you're introduced to this new audience of people who are not your tried and true loyal customers. There are people who want to experience what you do because they saw your name on this recognized list. And it can often pose problems for the people who have supported you since day one, who all of a sudden they can't get a table anymore. Or you end up putting too much pressure on your purveyors because you're asking for more quantities of things because Michelin Guide recommended your scallop dish and you put tons of pressure on your scallop purveyor to get more scallops and they they can't and so then what what do you do as a business do you say we can't do the scallop dish anymore because that that guide those words that they wrote about you are going to be there for a year until the next year right and so that's kind of like the dichotomy that we're dealing with here where you know so many chefs would kill to have a michelin star and then you see these people who actually get it and then they just they they want to give it back or they they (laughs) this is definitely a new level where you see people who are pursuing lawsuits especially if the settlement is going to be you know probably a little bit more uh like a table for four would spend more than 420 dollars at this restaurant i would argue and he's pursuing that amount of money from the michelin guide in settlements so It is what it is, folks. People are going to pursue what they want to pursue. And, you know, some people are just stuck in their ways. I don't want any of you to think that you should not pursue Michelin. Like, there are benefits to all of this stuff. It's This is just a case of someone recognizing you. I think it's, um, it might be similar to if you're like, if you're a knife maker and you just want to sell to professional chefs and hook them up, and then all of a sudden, like, GQ features you in their gear of the year. You know what I mean? And then now you're getting all these random inquiries from uh, people that work on Wall Street in New York, and they want one of your knives because they saw it in GQ, and they don't even know what goes into it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of interesting. I don't necessarily think that either person is in the right. I think the Michelin is going to, you know, Michelin was wrong for if they got correspondence from this person to say, I don't want to be included in the guide. But then at the same time, like they probably thought like, this is going to be great publicity for us. I don't know what they thought. I, I, I don't work at Michelin. I don't have any contacts at Michelin. So I can't ask. I think, um, every single time we see an article come out like this, it's just more publicity for Michelin. Right. So they probably see it as a win. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? This would be something that I would love, especially because so many of you folks wanted me to cover this. If you have thoughts, I would love for you to share them down low in the comments, or maybe we can get in a little bit of a tiff on Twitter about it. I would love that. More lists. Thrillist put out its list of best new restaurants, and I didn't necessarily want to cover this because I think it's an amazing list. I think this list is good. I think it's low-key. I think it's fun. I think it's just people who love food writing about places that got them excited, and I don't think anybody but the businesses that got covered have anything to gain here. I don't think this is to get more people to buy more Thrillist books or visit their sites or book vacations or whatever. I think this is just a genuine list, but I do want to talk a little bit more about their effort to be more transparent in the publishing of this list and how they kind of presented their process because it was very 2019. And so I really want to kind of get into that a little bit. So, quote, we wanted to be the most local and credible perspective possible. So we hired a diverse panel of food writers and experts from around the country to nominate and profile these selections. Our criteria, we're going to get that into a little bit. As for the panelists racking up the culinary currency eating these meals, we're black, Asian, Latin, X, and everything mixed together. We live in Charleston, Las Vegas, Los, Los Angeles. Why did I have to say it like that? Because <laughs> I went from Los to Los. We're willing to lavish unwise sums of money on a dining experience that takes us out of ourselves and lingers in our memory long afterwards. But we also know that that kind of experience doesn't have to blow your budget. Our best new restaurants list is for those of us who bring our whole selves to the table, our family backgrounds, our lived experiences, and our hunger for extraordinary meal. So I have to talk about these kind of like four pillars of how they, this is their criteria. Quote, First, we handpick six food experts from across the country, two staffers on our food team, and four freelancers to serve as our best new restaurant panelists. We felt it was important the panel be diverse, not just in region or ethnicity, but in age and experience. So we've got everyone from veteran food writers who have chaired James Beard Award panels, to public radio producers and food podcasters, to food activists, former chefs, and an oyster catcher. And I do need to let it be known that there's only one man on this panel of six, and his name is Kevin Alexander. Moving on, they divided the country into six regions and gave each of our panelists a piece of that American pie. Within those regions, we did not specifically insist on certain cities or specific styles of restaurants being covered. If the restaurant was anywhere within a panelist region and had opened up after September 2018, then it was fair game. The third criteria... They asked the panelists to consider whether the restaurant serves fantastic, craveable, etched-in-your-memory dishes and whether their five senses were positively engaged during the entire dining experience. Was the restaurant too loud? How was the menu displayed? Did the chef put their own quirky stamp on things? Beyond the stamp, who else is working in the restaurant? Who are its regulars? Maybe that's a little nod to the power lunch problem that we dealt with a few episodes ago. We also wanted restaurants that make a statement about America's food culture in 2019, but without explicitly spelling it out. Notice that little nuance. And we wanted to know how each establishment values the community beyond its own doors. How does it embody the neighborhood? And the fourth piece of criteria, each of the panelists submitted a list of four, five to seven semifinalists in their region, along with an argument as to why they should be considered. From there, the panelists were asked to revisit the restaurant and narrow their list down to a top one to three restaurants. And from those lists, the Thrillist food team selected the final 12 spots. And so I ultimately have a few questions on this entire process. Like, so I am responsible for the West Coast of the United States. That's my region, right? And I pick five restaurants, and I am asked to go back to them again, and then I come back with three restaurants. And 
the Thrillist team says, we need to narrow this down to two. You have three, we need it down to two. Does the Thrillist food team then go to these places? Did like does any do any of the other panelists eat there? Because the way that I'm reading this, like everybody else was scattered across the country. I'm the only one that has firsthand accountable experience of like what it was like to eat at this restaurant. And so like you're going off of my word and my photos and my subjective recollection of what my experience was. Because unless you kind of like have people swap regions, like are you coaching the panelists on why they should pick a certain restaurant over the other? I don't think this list is going to make or break anyone's business, but I think it's important if you're going to be like fair and inclusive and diverse and transparent, and then maybe they played favorites after the fact, right? If they weren't objective in when it comes down to the final choices, how did they come up with this list? And maybe because they were so good at, you know, having all of these questions, was the menu better displayed at restaurant A or restaurant B? Okay, well, it was better shown at restaurant A. We're going to pick that one because we've laid out these questions that we asked. And then through this flowchart, we take everybody through. That's how we determine all this stuff. But I just, it's an interesting case study in people kind of trying to over index on being the opposite of the establishment. Like we're not Michelin, right? We lay out exactly how we chose our restaurants. But then it doesn't necessarily translate to a better list in my mind, right? Like, do I think this is the end-all be-all of if you're in the West Coast of the United States, you should eat at these two places, one in Portland, one in LA? Good question. It's just, I know all these lists are super subjective and biased, and I know that there's no clear-cut way to come to the selection, but I think that putting it with this many creative constraints, you're only going to get a certain number of restaurants, right? And I think it's cool. I like. I, I don't want to demean this list. I think that everybody who got an award are places that I've heard of before. Um, let's run through a few of these here. We have Alta Restaurant. We have Automatic Seafood out of Birmingham, Alabama. We have uh, Benayon Eagle. We've talked about that before in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, Eam in Portland. Uh, Gertier in New York, in Williamsburg. We have uh, Last Regal, Last Riga, La Strega. Jesus, I'm reading. Sorry, guys, it's their Instagram handle, so I'm uh, I'm I'm not getting the full picture here. Here we go. Um, Last Betty in Atlanta. We have uh, Mace. Uh, what what is it called? Mason. I think it's just Mason in uh, Charleston. We have uh, da, 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 what is this one? called tail taylor just called taylor t-a-i-l-o-r in nashville tennessee uh thami in washington dc uma in san francisco and then wherewithal in chicago so those are the 12 winners again this is one of those lists that like i think it's great to get an insight into who's making moves in your city i think Going through this, especially on desktop, was a really fun reading the list experience because you'd get these little blurbs inside of the choices where you would see like so-and-so talks about food in Birmingham and why the culture has changed or so-and-so talks about Thai food and they would literally hop on the phone with either the chef or one of the panelists would speak and talk about their experience. And I think that that was kind of a really cool, like the photos are great. The scrolling experience where like the things are changing and you're 
um, it's super colorful. Like it's not just a, a white background with some text on it and some fun photos. Um, it was a very well executed list. I just think as someone who covers a lot of these lists, it's very brave of you to go out and try to create this thing that is so transparent and so inclusive. I just think that in the same way that I know Joe Rogan often talks about the idea of being a president in the United States to be a stupid job, like there's 330 million people and you're going to say that you're responsible for all of them. I think that the idea of coming up with a best restaurants list is always going to cause conflict. Like, I think that the idea of it is just so outrageous and so silly. And yet I still continue to cover it as a podcaster and we all continue to regard them sometimes, especially when we're the ones getting recognized. But yeah, I think I just wanted to cover it because it was such a new way to present a list and to come up with your decisions. Talking about new ways to come up with your business and how you're going to operate, Dominique Crenn has taken meat off of the table at all of her restaurants, and that is the headline coming from Eater San Francisco. I am in a unique place where I can say that one of our biggest clients, which is WeWork, follows a similar approach. They, as a company, aren't allowed to purchase meat, and so whenever I do an event for them or for any of their clients where they're footing the bill, I can't use meat on my menus. And so I've actually gotten really pretty jazzed about cooking pescatarian. I worked on the west coast of Norway for a long time, so I'm no stranger. And I really love working with fish and shellfish. But I think for someone of her stature and her, you know, level of influence to decide to eliminate this type of product from her restaurants, we will see exactly what happens. So, quote, in a press release sent out early this morning, Kren announced that as of October 1, her three existing San Francisco restaurants, along with her forthcoming Salesforce Tower project, Boutique Kren, would now focus exclusively on seafood and vegetables, citing the chef's desire to, quote, affect real environmental change. Meat is an insanely meat is insanely complicated, both within the food system and the environment as a whole, and honestly, it felt easier to just remove it from menus altogether, the chef said in the release end quote. And so let's see, do I have an opinion? I think that it's potentially harmful in the realm of if people get scared and don't want to support meat at all, I think that that will cause ripple effects that we don't realize actually make an impact, whether it's through raising cattle or puts an increased pressure on farmers to create more produce, which causes more land to be converted into farmland or land to be stressed too hard and not given the amount of time that it needs to recover as far as soil goes. I don't know. It, we, we haven't experienced this before. In the past, it's all been about what's the fattiest, biggest cut of meat that I can get, most tender, blah, blah, blah. And it even talks about that in this article where meat-based ingredients like whipped duck fat were still used as an accent for some time. And I think that that was kind of the first, when I had a chef that would use meat as a seasoning as opposed to like a main staple, that was when I first started to realize like, okay, not every dish needs to be like a cut of something grilled in this way. Like you can have Brussels sprouts or carrots or radishes or whatever with bonito or guanciale or um, 
what is that beef cut bra uh, brasola like you can have all these different ways of using meat like i would have rather seen the piece of news that she's deciding to go nose to tail on a lot of her stuff like how cool would that be to say like yes we're going to use meat but we're going to decide that this is going to be our process for using the entire thing and we're going to source from xyz places i don't necessarily think that this kind of cold and i understand that she says it she says it's easier to just remove it from the menus altogether than to get the pressure of someone sitting down and saying oh my god you serve pork where does it come from and then you know nitpicking on all these other things meanwhile they're paying the check out of a leather purse you know what i mean like the the struggle is real on some of these ethical dilemmas and i think that we will see how this plays out. And I think that, again, none of us are used to having to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it talks about the vegetarian menu spot in Napa called Ubuntu, which actually closed. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know why I didn't dig enough into it. And that's not the only piece of Dominique Crenn news I wanted to speak about. Near Towards the end here, it does talk about the new menu concept that she's kind of wanting to talk about. And this is actually funny because I remember distinctly hearing interviews with Grant Ackett's where he talks about moving people during a tasting menu. And she's doing it. It's a $275 to $350 movable feast that will take guests on a kind of progressive dinner through all three of her restaurants with bites at each one and an uber black car service to Petite Crenn where the meal will end with a seven course tasting menu. And so that's kind of a really unique style of serving someone dinner that I don't think I've ever seen before, where, yes, you're acknowledging that you have three separate restaurants and you're giving people a dynamic experience as opposed to here to sit in this seat all night and we're going to serve you 15 courses. I thought that was very interesting. New piece, I want to talk about this four tips for better restaurant dining from Eater Editors, more of you know, this isn't gospel, right? This is just a fun Justin reacts to on this quickie piece here. Uh, one piece of advice is just ask for the table that you want. I think that's uh, interesting. I don't think I've ever been the type of person, unless it's like a view table, like if you're on the top floor of a hotel in Hong Kong and you can see the skyline of the city and you have the option of either sitting next to the window where you can see things or you're kind of like more in inland on the dining room. I think obviously choose the window, but I think... I think most people know that. Like if a if if a server is taking you over to a table and you see a one that you'd rather sit at, just ask. I think both I, I guess I would agree with that. I also am the type of person that it's like, given this section of the dining room or that section of the dining room, I, I don't really care. See me wherever. Tip number two is treat weekend breakfast like a mini vacation. I don't necessarily think that that's Oh, she talks about like driving somewhere to get to breakfast. I mean, I guess if like you have a day off and you're like, I want to go do a little like half day trip to go eat somewhere, but why does it have to be breakfast? She says before the crowd show up. Interesting. Tip number three is never order coffee at brunch. And I think this is talking about the fact that because it's so busy, quote, it could arrive cold, weak, or poorly poured. If you're daring to order an espresso based beverage. Yeah, if you're like super addicted to coffee and you're going to get a headache half a, halfway through brunch if you don't get your caffeine fix or if you're going to be an irritable ball of negativity, 
I think that there's value in stopping at a coffee shop before you get brunch, but I wake up before we're going to go to brunch anyways, and so I usually make myself coffee at home anyways. It says diner coffee doesn't count. It's in its own category, and with free refills, you're not allowed to complain. Then the fourth tip is to cross-reference photos from Instagram and Yelp. Just basically talking about, like, if you look at the restaurant's uh, website and you're going to see photos of their food, sometimes that can be, like, really dolled up and fancily, professionally photographed food. And if you look on Instagram and Yelp, like, if you do the thing where you look at the location tag of the restaurant, you'll see everybody who's tagged photos of their meal there. You can often see either famous dishes, things that are like super popular, everybody orders this, which I will sometimes do if I'm like, I don't know what to order off this, you know, 18 item menu and I really only want to order two or three things, what should I order? And they're basically saying that you can get a quote, you can get a, it can give you a clearer and likely overexposed idea of what it is you'll actually experience when you sit down. And I know for everybody that talks shit on Yelp, it says sometimes Yelp is too real and can turn you off to a place that's actually great. David Chang is going to write a memoir. It's going to be called Eat a Peach. And I think it's awesome to see. I know that chefs are... This is what I was talking about early on in the show when, you know, chefs talking about their upbringing isn't new, but this air of kind of openly discussing depression and anxiety and drug and alcohol use is nothing like the stories that I grew up reading, where the culture back then was just saying, oh, well, it was screaming and yelling. That's just how it is. Like, this is a high, this is a high stress, high pressure kitchen. That's how it is. Deal with it, you know? And, quote, Eat a Peach is described as part memoir, part philosophical thesis about Chang's relationship with his mental health. The title is clearly a reference to his restaurant empire, Momofuku meaning Lucky Peach, duh, but also perhaps references T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, in which the narrator narrator asks, do I I dare to eat a peach? In the middle of his fretful musings on life and self-image, then again, David Chang is a big fan of the Almond Brothers Band, so maybe it's a reference to their Eat a Peach album. With the help of co-writer Gabe Ula, a former Eater staffer and current Eater contributor, Peach explains the ideas that guide Chang and demonstrates how cuisine is a weapon against complacency and racism. End quote. So that's definitely going to get into it. It does talk at the end here about um, I Got Your Back and Cat Kidsman's Chef with Issues, Chefs with Issues, if you are interested in kind of either joining that conversation or getting some support through platforms like that. And yeah, it just talks about the strong stigma against therapy in many Asian American households. I think it's going to be a great memoir. And it's just this idea that when you see someone that looks like you or that you can relate with saying certain things, it either removes the stigma or you now have a different calibration on your reference points. And so I think that to have someone like David Chang doing something like this, maybe some people think it's, you know, a little bit too woke. I don't necessarily think so. I think that we are in an era where he is growing a lot as a person and he's made it known on his show that he has in his conversations and in his um, growth as a manager and as a chef and as a, you know, a new dad, he's realizing all these things that he didn't see in himself as a young chef. And so I think for him to bring all this to the forefront is good. I think all of it's good. Okay, continuing on, we are going to discuss a quickie story on my homegirl, Rachel Ray. She 
announced that she was going to be opening something called a virtual restaurant with Uber Eats, and that is happening in Chicago. And I didn't want to cover it because I think it's an exciting concept. I think that it's a concept that is on trend with what we've been covering in a city like Chicago. And I think that, here, let's talk about the restaurant for a little bit. Quote, Chef Rachel Ray has spent nearly two decades delivering food to the public through TV, cookbooks, events, grocery store shelves, but she's never had a restaurant. This month, Ray announced a partnership with Uber Eats for a virtual restaurant, her first ever restaurant concept of any kind, she says. It begins Tuesday in Chicago as part of a nationwide launch and runs through the end of 2019, so you've only got another month to experience it. Prices range from $3.95 to $13.95. She says, quote, I don't consider this a restaurant, obviously, but it's a fun way for people to eat my food. It's certainly the first instance in which people have paid to eat my food, like a restaurant. And so she has a new book out. This is definitely a great publicity move for her. I think that the idea that she already has her thousand true fans, as Kevin Kelly would say, she's going to get business. And the way that she priced it is also like, I can't get lunch delivered to me in Seattle for $13.95. Like, that's crazy. And I know that you have the Uber Eats fees on top of that or whatever. But the idea that she isn't doing this as a money-making thing, at least from what I've noticed, like, Let's talk about the food. Sicilian orange and fennel salad, buffalo pulled chicken chili with smoked blue ranch sauce, and fried chicken sandwich. This definitely has a, you know, Americana comfort food element to it. But I think that that this is also like, I don't think, if this does well, this is not the last time we will see a concept like this happening. It's not, it's already not the first time we've seen something like this. We've talked about ghost kitchens before, right? Where it's the, there is no dining room. The only opportunity you have is to go through delivery services, right? But the the larger macro trends that I'm talking about is this kind of low cost, temporary way to test a menu, right? Like, tell me you couldn't, do something along the lines of like a small plates tapas idea, but you're doing it at a much decreased cost because you're not paying exorbitant amounts for X number of square feet to have a dining room. You're not paying for a dining room staff. Yes, maybe you're not making as much money on like alcohol sales and drinks, but you know, it's just a different kind of environment where this wasn't available when the infrastructure of these delivery services wasn't here five years ago, right? My other question is, how much did Uber Eats pay her for this kind of a partnership? Because it seems like, again, she's opened a virtual restaurant with Uber Eats, right? So how much of Uber Eats is footing that bill to say that they made this kind of a partnership happen? Do you know what I mean? And then I think that this also ties into this other bigger picture realization of apartments that are built to accommodate this style of food concept. We talked about that a few weeks ago where architects are building apartments that have larger driveways where Uber Eats and Postmates and, you know, Foodza or whatever these companies are could come in and drop things off towards the evening hours because they were experiencing lots of congestion. And then inside the apartments, they're more focused on the dining room area as opposed to building out kitchens that actually have the capacity to prepare food because they're realizing that the tenants of these places are young professionals with disposable income who just don't have time or the skill set to prepare food for themselves. So I think it's just like the the stars aligning on a bunch of different macro trends is why we're seeing concepts like this kind of come to light, if that makes sense. 
Okay, moving on to direct answer. This is the section of the story where you folks send me a DM and I do my best to provide as much value as I can to help the greater good through an answer. It's called direct answer and I uh, directly did not include it in the last solo episode. Thank goodness none of you noticed. Um, Talking about a question from EXOXMS97 on Instagram. Very long message. The thing I want to ask directly from a person who knows better like yourself about a few things, it goes like, I am being entrusted with the bar and a pool station at a new resort in quite some time, but I kept on being a mess towards my own self. I do try my best every day onwards, but shit always happens, and yet I keep on getting the F word directly from the executive chef for being a mess up. Is there any tips for a Comey out there, including for me, on how to manage a station by my own self? and how to control our station flows in which the orders, the cooking, and the mise en place all happen at the same time. And lastly, how to be a professional chef without waxing any of the big executives' backs. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think that you might not necessarily be in the right environment where you're getting that kind of training. I think that I, the times when I felt the way that you're describing how you feel I either didn't have someone above me to kind of take the time to show me exactly how it is to set up my station for success, or I think that you might just be in, like, I spent so much time in my early days observing how other people set up their stations, and I would watch them go down when things would go bad. And I would look at myself and I'd be like, okay, when I get there, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to make sure I'm super prepared. I'm always going to make sure that I ask for help when I need help. And I think that some of the questions that I an- that I answer, hopefully, in some of my earlier videos of like asking yourself, what's on your station that doesn't need to be on your station? Like that would be my first, like if I walked in with you on your state, on your shift tomorrow, I would look at your station and I would say, why do you have so many sixth and ninth pans on your station why is your cutting board set up like that instead of like this why do you have two pairs of tongs in your bain marie instead of just one do you know what i mean and so all of that like removing all the clutter from your station can give you this immense sense of like okay take a deep breath and like you can see exactly what's going on because you might be just overwhelmed to trying to like, okay well i feel like i'm slow i feel like i'm behind so i'm gonna do three things at once instead of just one And now you feel overwhelmed because you have two things that are half done and one thing that's not even started. Do you know what I mean? And now you're worse off than if you would have just dedicated time to getting one thing done and then having another thing start so it can go and boil in the background and then you're working on another task, right? So watch my prep list video. Figure out what are those big projects? What are those big big things that scare you? Because sometimes those prioritization things can often be the thing that set you up for failure because you're like, oh, well, I'm going to knock a couple of these first things off and then you don't clean up after yourself. And so then you start the big project and your station's already a mess, you know, because you decided that you were going to peel the eggs and you were going to slice the onions for the pickles and now you have eggshells and onion skin filaments all over your station and now you're going to start to butcher the chickens you know and you're like oh well shit i probably should have started with the big projects and then gone after that how to be a professional chef without waxing the big executives back i think that that comes from a sense of respect to them 
everybody likes to feel like they're respected from, you know, people underneath them, of course. But then also understanding the idea that you, two things, two things, your job is to make them not look like an idiot. I have a video about that as well. And then also the idea that you looking bad is a direct bad reflection on them. So if you can make sure that you're always on point or you're, you know, asking those difficult questions sometimes where it's like, uh, I don't necessarily think that this cabbage looks all that good today. You're better off having that conversation early and saying, you know, listen, chef, I don't think that the cabbage looks all that good today. Is there any chance that we can get more in today for service tonight? That's a better question than you passing up the cabbage for the first plate of the night and then having them say, hey, man, what the fuck? Like this cabbage does, this cabbage looks like garbage. I'm not going to serve this, you know? So the idea of being proactive with your responsibility instead of, oh, now I got yelled at. So now I have to be responsible. You know what I mean? The responsibility can start before you get yelled at. Hmm. That's a good video idea. The responsibility can start before you get yelled at. Think about that for a little while. And I hope that like a couple of those, you know, extra tips in in addition to just being like relentlessly organized, make sure you have your lists, start your order list during your prep so that you're not forgetting about things. I'm working on a video about marking your board so that as you get overwhelmed with orders, you have a way to kind of keep track of what came in without using like pen and paper. Um, all very, very good tips that I wish that someone would have taught me early on. Okay, because I don't want this to be a 90-minute long episode, I'm going to get through our non-industry stories really fast. The Tesla Cybertruck came out this week, and I actually like it. I know that that's not a very popular, well, I'd say it's probably like 50-50, actually. Some people like it, some people don't. I like it. I think it was a very smart marketing move. I thought it was a very unique design decision. As someone who's interested in product design and marketing myself, I really, really dug what happened during that launch. One of my favorite companies, Peak Design, just came out with their V2 version of bags. And I don't think the version 2 backpack has enough new features where I'm amped at making the switch. But they did come out with a new version of a bag that I use quite frequently called their Sling. And I they came out with two, three sizes. I have the 5-liter Sling. I kind of want to get the 6-liter Sling. But I'm waiting to kind of upgrade my iPad, which is my monitor for my video feed right now. And I use it pretty frequently, but I need to get a new iPad before I get the six liter sling because currently this iPad fits perfectly in the five liter sling. And so if I get a new iPad, I'm going to have to get a new bag because the new iPads don't fit in this five liter sling. First world problems, folks. But as someone who loves upgrading and testing and interacting with products, because it's kind of like what I do for my side hustle that is this YouTube thing, I enjoy it. And so I'm going to continue to do it. I just like to talk it through on my this room that I'm sitting in by myself because sometimes it makes me, you know, realize things that I didn't think about early on in my research, my product research. Shout out to everybody else who does that. Research is a product to no end before they actually buy it. I saw Ford versus Ferrari. My fiance's parents are in town and we went to go see that movie yesterday. I highly recommend. I'm not even a car person, but it was just a great story. Like Matt Damon and Christian Bale together on camera doing a story about 
early days competitive brands versus each other. It was great. It was a great movie. Got got your heart pounding there for a few minutes in that movie. Lastly, for, you know, we have three minutes until this camera shuts off, so I'm going to do a little bit of a rant here. Um, I have a lot of travel coming up over the next few months. I'm going to Bergen in 10 days. I'm going to Portland this weekend, going to Vancouver before I go to Norway, and I get back here, and I'm back here for a few weeks, then I go back to Minneapolis, going to Wisconsin to see my family, not traveling during Christmas or New Year's. So I will be in Seattle during those times. And then after Wisconsin, I go to Australia for my business partner's wedding. I'm doing a big Australian tour. Flights just got booked for that. So I'm very excited to do that. I will do be doing an Australian meetup. More info on that soon. And then I come back for a few weeks. And then I go to India to see my family and introduce Anna to all of them. And then I'm going to Thailand for Find Me in Seattle's wedding. So all of that said to say, and then I get back and there's something else that's happening. I'm I'm doing a lot of travel over the next few months. And it's also coinciding with this time in Voyager's table where we're at like this crazy inflection point. Like we're finally at a point where we feel like we can truly commit to having some full-time employees with us um, in some clearly defined roles. And I think that it's just like, this is the time of my career that I would want documented. And I'm to a point where I have so many like little nuggets of video ideas that I think should just be fleshed out in a vlog. Like it's just a little rant that I want to go on. And so to have it be this thing where I can show you folks what I'm thinking and I can be like, oh yeah, I remember when Justin was in Thailand and he talked about XYZ because he was at that weird restaurant. Like, I think that those kind of stories can kind of stick out in your mind a little bit more than me just being in the studio and going on a rant, you know? And so I want the stuff documented. I want to provide you folks value. I want, I just like, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm a, that was a very long and roundabout way to say that I'm going to start vlogging again. I think I'm thinking once per week. I'm not trying to commit myself to anything too intense because I know that that can often come with its own like, I'm daily vlogging and then if I miss one, I'm going to feel like shit. So I don't want that. I just want it to be like this thing where I shoot some footage, I provide some valuable insight into something and it's just fun to follow along and watch and that's kind of the goal. So stay tuned for that. The folks have, uh, that stick around to the end of these podcasts are the ones that I want to get excited about that kind of stuff. Um... As per usual, everything is linked up down below if you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive. I really appreciate you for listening this long into the show. That's funny how it cut out and uh, didn't want to have me say, roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash Justin is the place to do that. 
that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me.